0: which was given me by the working of His power. To me, though I am the very least of all these saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask that you not lose heart over what I'm suffering, which is for your glory. Father, I thank you for these words. What we don't have, would you give to us? What we we need, would you impart? And would you help us to build the church here together, Lord? And it's in Christ's name I ask this. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, Unless my calculations are wrong, it's only 78 days until Christmas, right? We're just a little more than 11 weeks. It's not only time to crack out the Mariah Carey Christmas album, but it's also time to start thinking about gifts. And Black Friday is only 47 days away, but it never hurts to start thinking about gifts now. It reminds me of when our kids were young. There was one year when our oldest boys, we got for them a gift that was a huge hit. It was a a train table. And uh, you've seen some of these. There's are little tables that have uh, topographical paintings of, uh, you know, out in the countryside. And then it comes with uh, not only the the, the set uh, and the tracks, but it had this plastic mountain with a waterfall that goes down. Not a real wa- waterfall, but a painted one. And it had, uh, like, signs, and it had blocks, and all sorts of, it was just really, really Cool. And obviously the most important part of the, the train table is the trains. But equally important is the tracks. It's the tracks that keep the trains going where they need to go. And there was always a place where these trains were were going to be, but there would inevitably, inevitably be a problem. When the kids took them up a hill and they wanted to let gravity have its way and let the train just fall every so often the train would fall off the tracks, or something would happen, and the tracks just wouldn't work. And sometimes it was fun, but oftentimes it was frustrating, and that frustration would lead to blame. Well, there's obviously something wrong with these tracks. There's obviously something wrong with this train. And after a few times of trying and trying again. The end result would be a child who quit playing, a a train table that's an absolute mess and a frustrated misunderstanding of the purpose and the function of the train and its tracks. You know, many Christians are not that much different than a kid playing with a train table. God has set up a goal for the world so so that people from every tongue, tribe, and nation would praise Him and find joy in Christ alone. But for many Christians, the church is much like the train that falls off the tracks. The institution uh, in the, or the tracks is deeply flawed. It doesn't go with what it's intended, so uh, something doesn't work. Or perhaps we look at the, the leaders of the church as the, the, the train engine. And that's taking it on the tracks. And, and sometimes we think, well, the church leaders don't necessarily line up with the way that I see things. And, and uh, we see them as well-intentioned, but driving the organization off perfectly good tracks. And so, because of these prevalent views, many um, well-meaning Christians um, either stir the pot unnecessarily, quietly sulk, church hop until they find a a, a better church, or maybe just quit church altogether and not do it anymore. The pandemic did us no favors in our understanding of the importance of the church. Uh, It it taught some of us that simply worshiping at home is just as good, and, and God is just as honored in that, and hence it taught that church is really not that important at all. And even before that, there was An attitude that was creeping into the church that questions the necessity of church membership, doctrinal fidelity, and the crucial importance of the church's mission in the world. In many of these things, the problem is the tracks and the train. In our our text today, however, Paul, he helps us calibrate our understanding of the problem. It's not the tracks, and it's not the train. It's us, and it's our perspective of what God wants. So what God wants us to hear this morning through the pen of Paul is that the church is not some kind of social club. It's not a country club that you go to uh, that you can get good snacks and decent coffee and hang out with your friends for an hour or two. The church is the very plan of God in which he is bringing people from all tongues, tribes, and nations together under the authority of Christ to proclaim the victory of Christ to a world that is in need of Christ. The church is not optional. To be a Christian without a church home is to be an incomplete Christian. So three things that we need to look at today. The first is that we need to accept the makeup of the church. We need to accept the makeup of the church. Not the, not the cover girl kind of makeup, but how the church is, uh, come, comes together here. Paul's enthusiasm for the church is really quite contagious in these chapters here. Um, after 12 verses of expounding on the unity of the church and what we need to be as a body, that uh, a unity that transcends race and, and gender and culture and all other barriers that divide us, Paul starts in verse 1 with launching into this great prayer because he is just so excited. He says, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. And just like that, he stops his prayer, and he digresses. He won't return to his prayer until verse 14. Instead, he sees this need to help us see what the church is and his unique role in shaping it. He says, I, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. So here's this glimpse of Paul's situation. He is sitting in a Roman prison. This wasn't a nice place to be. It's dark, it's dirty, it's dank. There's probably rats and all sorts of stuff going on. He is chained, more than likely, to a Roman guard. Um, and And even though he says here that he is a prisoner of Jesus, it would be more accurate to say that he is a prisoner for Jesus, on behalf of Jesus, and he is a prisoner of the Emperor Nero. He is not complaining, though. Notice he is not looking for pity. Rather, he sees his, his plight here as an opportunity to encourage you and to encourage me in the gospel. He writes that his ministry, which, by the way, includes imprisonment, was to share the gospel of God's grace. And in verse 3 now, he makes it known that this isn't just some sort of news that he picked up on the street or something that he read in the Star Tribune. Rather, this was a direct revelation from Jesus Christ. This was the role of an apostle. An apostle was a divinely appointed man in the New Testament times who spent time with Jesus, who was taught by Jesus and and commissioned by Jesus to preach the gospel and reveal the mystery of God's grace to ears that had never heard of it before. And because we have now the the completed Word of God, that office of apostle died with the original apostles. And if you happen to go to a church or visit a church in which the pastor claims that he is an apostle, it would be best for you to make sure that you know how quickly you can get to the exit doors. And here in verse 3, he mentions that this revelation from Jesus involves a mystery. And there are all kinds of mystery uh, religions here in Ephesus at this time that rela- that, uh, that was, uh, foundations were that there was this secret knowledge that some had that others didn't have. It was a secret, and the only people that knew are those who were in the club, those who were worshiping those particular deities. And Paul uses this concept now, and he applies it to the church, though Uh, this isn't really a mystery at all. We've talked before about the mystery in the New Testament here means something that had previously been undisclosed that has now been disclosed and opened. So, it's precisely why he wrote in verse 4, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ or the, the revelation of Christ or the unfolding news of his redeeming work. Verse 5, was made, was not made known to the sons of men and other generations as it has been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So there's this understanding that the revelation of, of God is somewhat progressive. Moses didn't know what David knew. David did not know what Isaiah knew. Isaiah did not know what Malachi knew. Malachi did not know what John the Baptist knew. God had revealed himself slowly over time to his people more and more about who he is. They were simply prophets that were relaying information that was previously unknown and making it known. And now the fulfillment of that is found in the church. So what is this mystery here? Well, Paul tells us in Verse, uh, verse 6, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So it's, it's hard to uh, appreciate how big of a deal this was. Jews had, going all the way back to Abraham's time, an exclusive relationship with God. To them was given the law. To them was given that relationship. To them was given that covenant. And the original intent was that Israel would be a light unto the nations, that the world would see how great this God is, and that through Israel all the people of the world would be enfolded into the family of God. But instead of being that light so that all the world could see, Israel hoarded it for themselves. Instead of letting the world know how good God was, it turned into, let's show the world how great we are as a people. And so, here. Last week, I went into detail about the, the vitriol that Israel spewed onto the Gentiles. But notice the radical statement of Paul here. Now that Christ has come, lived, died, resurrected, and ascended, he has completely erased the significance of both Jew and Gentile. He says to the Jews, He says, You're no longer included because of your pedigree. And He says to the Gentiles, You are no longer excluded because of your pedigree. The only means of inclusion into God's family and his people is God's grace through faith. It's not because of what you've done or who you are. It's because, rather to say, it is in spite of who you are and what you have done the labels of Jew and Gentile are completely gone, and a new community has emerged from the two who have union in Christ. And when we consider the background of this, it's astonishing. If you are here today and you're in Christ, there's a bit of gratitude that we ought to have toward God. Unless I'm mistaken, there isn't a big Jewish population here in Mora. So my guess is is that 99.9% of us here are probably Gentiles. That means, had this mystery not been revealed, you and I and everybody around here would still be living in darkness. We would still be bound for hell. We would still not be included in God's covenant. But as it is, Christ died for you and for me. Now the promises belong to us, not as Gentiles or Jews, black or white or American or Mexican or whatever it is, but as the church. We are what makes up the church. And second, we should be the church by proclaiming Christ. Be the church by proclaiming Christ. In verses 8 and 9, Paul gives us a little commentary on his life and shows us how great the grace of God is. He says to me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, he's not displaying a false humility here. He's probably genuinely feeling it. It doesn't mean that he is the the least of the saints. But when he looks back on his life before he met Jesus, he considers himself as low as it could possibly be. Here was a guy that was a Jew of the Jews, uh, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, a guy that was groomed to be in the upper levels of the uh, Jewish officials. So zealous was he. So passionate was he about his... um, His faith or his community, however you want to put it, that he pursued the church violently by imprisoning people of the church and by executing them. But when he met Christ on the Damascus Road, his life was dramatically changed. Jesus took him from the prosecutor to the proclaimer and made him the most prolific missionary ever in history. But when he got alone with himself and pondered his previous life before Christ, do you think he had regrets? I bet he did have regrets. I bet it was hard for him to imagine the scenes of the horror on the faces of the people that he arrested and killed. I'm sure that went through his mind. And now he is worshiping the very one that he was persecuting people before for. And I'd be willing to bet that there are quite a few of us that are sitting right now in these chairs that when you got alone with your, yourself and your thoughts, there's some deep regrets as well. Some things that went down somewhere in our past that we would pay money to be able to erase and to forget. You might be one who can understand why Paul would say, Though I am the least of all the saints. But he goes on to display here God's grace by reminding us that it's not our record that makes us right with God, rather, it is his grace. He says, To me, though I am the very least of the saints, this grace was given. There's nothing, there's nothing in your past, there's nothing in your present, there's nothing in your future that God's grace cannot not only forgive, but also overcome. If this grace was given to Paul, who killed Christians, it's available to you, and it's available to every single one of us through faith in Christ. But what is this grace, though, that Paul was given? He says that it is to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So there are storehouses, sheds, filled with God's grace at his disposal. He has more than enough riches that come out of him to cover every single sin debt that we could possibly owe. But not only that, but he had a special commission, he said, to bring light for everyone that he was obviously sent out to preach this Christ to those who had been previously excluded Hang on one second here. Okay, so uh, he was sent out to preach this Christ to those who had been previously excluded. Uh, These verses force us to recognize really two realities. Number one, the unique mission of Paul, and second, the overall mission of the church. Paul was unique in his his, uh, commission to the Gentiles, yet we as the church are on mission for God. We are proclaiming redemption that is found in Christ for those who are far off and those who are near. Why is that? Paul tells us now in verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now, admittedly, this is a very interesting verse and somewhat hard to get our minds around. Um, The question revolves around who are what are the identities of these rulers and authorities? And some have taken this to mean that these rulers and authorities are like political entities um, that, uh, that have power dynamics that go with them, that, that end up having systemic oppression throughout the world. And those who see it this way believe that the gospel serves as this sort of social equilibrium and they believe that it's the gospel that should destroy all hierarchies because they believe hierarchies are bad and that they're only tools for oppression and that the church's role is to fight these rulers and authorities, to lift up the victim and to crush the oppressor. Well, that's an interesting thought, but it's not the gospel. That's actually communism. And it's a reading into the text, something that wasn't meant to be there. Marx and his theory of the bourgeoisie and the proletariat didn't come for another 1,800 years after Paul wrote these words here. Something so antithetical to the gospel could not mean what Paul is meaning here. Rather, the most likely explanation of the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places is referring to that unseen spiritual dimension that is all around us right now and that we cannot see. Our culture wants to, to bristle at the thought of this unseen uh, dimension, but Paul has been very clear, going all the way back to chapter one verse three, when he praised God because he has blessed us in the heavenlies uh, because of Christ, and that, that the powers of darkness have no dominion over people who are in Christ. Further, in chapter one verse 20, Paul wrote that Christ has been elevated to the ruler of these heavenly places. Remember that the Ephesians here were a superstitious bunch. They were accustomed to praying to various astral spirits and and deities to get these spirits to give them power on their behalf. And Paul isn't denying this reality, but he's bringing truth upon it. So when he states that the purpose of his calling was so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be known to the uh, rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. He was saying that the existence of the church is the evidence to the spiritual realm that Jesus is victorious. That the war is over. The existence of the church and its growth is a constant sign to Satan that you did not win. And true, he might still fight and rage, as, as uh, Martin Luther wrote in A Mighty Fortress of Our God. His rage we can't endure, but his, his doom is, is for sure. He can never win. We'll get more into that in chapter 6 in the spring, but for now it's crucial to see. That when the church is proclaiming Christ throughout the world, uh, it is not only to expand God's adoptive family, but it's to tell the rulers in the heavenly places that Christ is the one who is in charge here. He is the one that has authority. And it's also important to see that the idea of the church as God's vessel for distributing the news of the gospel here was not an afterthought, it wasn't as if God chose Israel, saw that they failed in their mission and came up with plan B. Rather in verse 11, it clearly indicates that the church was his chosen people in his plan from the very beginning. This was according to the eternal purposes that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what we're doing here This morning is not God's second choice. When we get to Ephesians chapter 5, he'll even go so far as to say that even Adam and Eve's role in marriage was to eventually show Christ's love for the church. This was his plan from the beginning. The church isn't a replacement for anything. It's the fulfillment and the culmination of God's plan before the foundation of the world. And if that is true, if we are the people of God who are commissioned to bring the light of Jesus Christ into a lost and dark world, we can have confidence. He will not leave us nor forsake us. Making disciples of Jesus Christ can be scary work. We have reputations to consider. We have employment to consider. We have family and friends to consider. There's a lot to lose in personal evangelism, but there's much more to gain. Paul tells us in verse 12 that in this mission, though scary, we have a boldness and access with confidence through faith in Him. So when it comes to being a witness of Jesus Christ and and sharing our faith with our friends and our family and our co-workers and our neighbors and even strangers, many of us, we sort of become like a turtle, right? And we go in our shell and we, we don't want to come out and engage. We don't feel like we know what to say. We, we don't want to be rejected. We, we um, don't know if we're going to help or hurt. But Paul says here that we have access, that we have confidence, and we have boldness. Friends, we have been given not just a flashlight, but we have been given like those bright headlights into a dark world. We have the opportunity to lead people out of darkness and into the light of Christ where there's forgiveness and redemption and peace and joy and eternal security. We may be the least of all the saints, But God often takes broken stones and broken stories and uses them to write incredible chapters in the lives of those that we interact with and share the gospel with. So, let's be the church and proclaim Christ. And third and finally, we should be the church in suffering. Be the church in suffering. Look in verse 1 again of chapter 3. It says, "'For this reason I, Paul,' a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. So again, he's writing from a Roman prison. And he's there, not because he's broken a, a, a moral law, but because he's proclaimed Christ as Lord and not Caesar as Lord. And, that in, uh, and so he is there because of his commitment to preaching this and he is there for the joy of you and me, and all people that come after us. Notice that Paul isn't saying he's been falsely imprisoned, though he was, he doesn't throw a pity party. Um, Notice he never even asks people to pray for him that he would get out of this situation. How quickly are we to dismiss any trial that God gives us? And ask for prayers of deliverance from from it. And rather, ask God how he would use this for his glory. Oftentimes, we would rather be out of the prison as soon as possible than think about the fact that God has you there for a reason. Now, our American context is shifting rapidly We're not yet at the point where we're physically being beaten for our faith. Uh, We are not yet imprisoned for our faith yet, but those days are coming. The torch has already been lit with lawsuits against florists and bakers and photographers who won't compromise their faith uh, because of the radical left's agenda to have everybody accept the sexual perversion and gender confusion that hits our culture and our community now. The torch was certainly lit during the pandemic when churches couldn't meet, but it was okay to riot and burn down buildings. We have been privileged up to this point, but that's quickly ebbing away. The call to serve and speak the gospel will involve suffering. Why? Because Christ suffered. And because we serve a gospel We will get into people's lives. And friends, people's lives are messy. They're filled with sin. It's dirty, it's dark, it's yucky. And when we get involved in people's lives, we suffer. People will get offended. You're going to be heartbroken. I've seen professing Christians who were leaders and active in churches that rather enjoyed their sin more than Christ and have walked away from Christ. And that is heartbreaking. It will take a toll on your family. When you stand for Jesus, you will be publicly criticized and your spouse and your children may have to stand by the side and just watch it happen. You might have strained relationships with your children who stray. There have been weeks when I've hardly seen my family. You will minister to people who get sick and who die. There will be seasons of intense suffering. Uh, I've, I've had times in ministry where in churches that I've been in have had to bury one major leader in the church after another, after another, and after another. And it Guts the church's soul. Your time, your health, your emotional well-being will be affected. There will be sleepless nights. There will be times when you see the ugliness of sin and all the facets that uh, that come with it. And all you can do is go back to the scripture again and again and see that Jesus is good and that the gospel is glorious. Paul says in verse thirteen. I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. Friends, don't lose heart over what you suffer for the gospel's sake. Serve the gospel faithfully. Serve the gospel by proclaiming Christ boldly, and serve the gospel in your suffering. His grace is sufficient, and his victory is sure. We are the church. The gates of hell cannot prevail against it. So friends, let's join together and be the church.